Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Remember that everything you buy has two costs. What you're paying right now, it might be really cheap, but you need to think about what's going to happen when you're done with it because there's a cost to be paid there too. And the cost when you give your stuff to a thrift store, when you pass your stuff along to someone like us, there's a lot of work involved in dealing with your stuff. It's off of your plate, but now it's on mine. You're listening to the Good Dirt Podcast. This is a place where we dig into the nitty gritty of sustainable living through food, fashion, and lifestyle. And we're your hosts, Mary and Emma Kingsley, the mother and daughter founder team of Lady Farmer. We're sowing seeds of slow living through our community platform, events, and online marketplace. We started this podcast as a means to share the wealth of information and quality conversations that we're having in our world as we dream up and deliver ways for each of us to live into the new paradigm, one that is regenerative, balanced, and whole. We want to put the microphone in front of the voices that need to be heard the most right now, the farmers, the dreamers, the designers, and the doers. So come cultivate a better world with us. We're so glad you're here. Now, let's dig in. How are you doing? Good morning. Very well. Beautiful September morning. So I wanted to chat a little bit today about the artist way, which some of you may or may not know it, and I'll get into that a little bit. But I thought it would be fun to open up with something that you and I, we might touch on a bit here, but just kind of go into a little bit of each of our own individual artistic hobbies and pursuits outside of Lady Farmer. You know, besides working on the podcast and everything that comes along with Lady Farmer every week, you and I are both really creative people and we we like to do our own kind of stuff. So what would you say that is for you, mom? I love to, of course, as you all know, work outside and work in the garden and continue to experiment out there and play with new things. And I feel like I'm always growing and learning in that world. And thanks to our audience who can learn and grow with me and us. And I also really enjoy writing. I've written a few books. I've written a couple novels. And I have, of course, written The Lady Farmer Guide to Slow Living, in case you're familiar with that. And I have some books in mind that I would like to write in the future. I love to play in the kitchen and experiment with recipes and all kinds of real foods, real foods that are straight from the farm in the garden. So yes, I I feel like I spend a lot of my days in creative pursuits along with Lady Farmer and outside of Lady Farmer as well. Yeah. And I think that Lady Farmer is sort of inextricably tied to each of our creative pursuits and our creative interests. And I have a feeling that the people listening to this podcast and the people that follow Lady Farmer, actually, I know a lot of them are very creative people. I know them in our in our community, the Almanac. We do lots of creative things together. And I love how that's sort of a natural thing that has emerged as we've gone on this journey is that I think that interest in sustainability and being closer to the earth also just brings up a lot of creative stuff. There's a lot of parallels with creativity, nurturing our own creativity, figuring out 
more, getting to know ourselves more and our inner life really helps sort of connect to this outer experience of the earth and the environment, which as we say on here a lot, maybe it is an inner experience because we are nature and we are part of the earth. So I just think it's a really important component of all of this. And to answer my own question too, my creative pursuits specifically outside of this involve, I love to act, I love to sing and dance. So it's a lot of performing theater stuff. I also love to write, but I also really love textiles and I love sewing and that's part of why I really am excited about this episode today. Any sewing enthusiasts will be really excited to hear from Liv, which we'll get to in a minute. But I wanted to take this opportunity to share with everyone that we will be starting another Artists' Way group really soon in the Almanac. In fact, it will be next. Let's see. Today is September 8th. So we're going to be starting the group on Sunday, September 8th. 17th, which is next Sunday night will be our first meeting. If you don't know what The Artist's Way is, it's a book. Truly, it starts as a book, The Artist's Way, A Spiritual Path to Higher Creativity. And the word spiritual is very broad here. It's not really tied to religion in any specific way. So whatever your comfort level is with that, if you find yourself very spiritual slash religious or not very, you will find a place in this book and in this work. But it's a self-study process that you do as a group. Well, you can do it by yourself too, but I find it much more effective in a group. And we actually did it this spring in the Almanac. It was really fun. It was such an amazing experience. Week after week, you, you study a chapter of this book per week, and then you come together and you talk about your experiences. It's very transformative, like extremely transformative. There's some big life-changing stuff that can happen if you're open to it. And a lot of people finding their way into this work and in, into their place here. So it's really amazing. And we did it in the spring and it was so fun. And due to popular demand, we are bringing it back. If you participated with us in the spring, then you get to join us at no cost. If you're an Almanac member, then you get to join us at a huge discount. And if you are not an Almanac member, that is totally fine. You can enroll just as a one-off. You don't have to be a member but the reason why we attach a price to this work is because it really kind of helps you commit to the work, which is it's work. It's daily journaling and weekly reflection. It really doesn't work unless you commit to it. So I have found personally when I pay for things, I get much more out of them. So that's my artist way spiel. And what's fun about the artist way is I originally heard from it heard about it in the 90s, mom, because you did the artist's way. So you're like, oh yeah, here we go. I've done this already. So do you want to talk a little bit about your experience with it? And then maybe we can go into how it relates to today's conversation. Yeah, I did it back in the 90s, early 2000s, I believe. I think it was 92. It's actually funny. We we found in our group this spring, there's a lot of things. It's very, when you read it, you're like, oh, this is not current. <laughs> like one week she has you not read anything. The idea being not to intake anyone else's creative work, but to really focus on creating your own work. That is so pre-social media because I'm sure that, it, and I'm sure she has said this, uh, the author is Julia Cameron. I'm sure if we asked her today, she would say, oh yeah, that totally applies to social media. But there, you know, there's like no mention of social media or internet or anything because it's like pre that, which is funny. 
Yeah. So interesting. And so when I first did it, you know, the internet was very young and of course there was no such thing as zoom meetings and all that. So, and I did it in a group, a group of, of young moms and we got together and would hash out the week's lesson and report what we had done and our obstacles and what we'd run into and what went well for us and all that. And it was just, it was a wonderful community activity. It was also a wonderful individual activity and a really just very valuable way of opening up your own creative process, whatever, whatever your creative endeavors are and whatever your ideas about what you want to accomplish creatively, or even if you don't know, it's, it's very valuable and sort of opening those doors for yourself. So I highly recommend it to anyone that's the least bit intrigued, even intrigued and the least bit tempted by the idea of exploring your own creativity. Yeah. And I would add on to that and say, especially if this is interesting to you and you're thinking, oh, but I'm not that creative or I'm not an artist. That means you should probably do it because we had a couple of those in our group last time. Literally, I we should get testimonials from them that I'm not even sure I should be doing this. And then they ended up some of the most engaged and amazingly transformative journeys to watch over the course of the 12 weeks. So we'll start it next Sunday and it'll end actually kind of right around, it's like between Thanksgiving and Christmas is when it wraps up. I believe it's December 10th. So it is a three month commitment, weekly Zoom meetings on Sunday evenings and just a really amazing time. More details will be on the Lady Farmer website. We'll link that in the show notes, how to sign up, how to join us, the materials you need, which are not many, any creative pursuit, planting a garden, sewing, painting, singing, dancing, writing, filmmaking, raising kids, whatever, cooking. I believe we're all creative. And I believe that being in touch with our creativity helps us be happier and kinder to each other and to the earth. So with that, let's introduce a wonderful artist today that we have on our podcast. Yes, our guest today is Liv Olson of A Thrifty Notion, which is a shop in the little town of Ogden, Kansas, that provides secondhand fabrics with the goal of keeping dead stock and de-stashed textiles out of the landfills. Liv is a lifelong dabbler in all things textile. She's particularly interested in the intersection of textiles and ecology. Her desire to save unique things from ending up in the landfill led her to start her secondhand fabrics shop. The philosophy behind Thrifty Notion is the belief that sewing can and should be sustainable. They hope to encourage their customers to think before they buy, check their stash, sew with what they have, upcycle, and generally put thought into their projects. But they also know that dead stock fabric sitting in a warehouse somewhere isn't doing anyone good. So they are happy to provide a secondhand shopping alternative for thoughtful makers. We really enjoyed exploring this niche in the sustainability space. And we hope that many of you makers out there will be inspired to embrace these ideas in your own practices. So here's Liv Olson of A Thrifty Notion. Olson and I run a Thrifty Notion, which is a mostly secondhand fabric and sewing supplies store. And we are primarily an online business. We do open to the public in our storefront on Saturdays, but for the most part, we just do everything online. Really, we just, we're trying to find new homes for sad, lonely old fabrics that need to be adopted. That's kind of essentially what we do. 
Where are you? We are located in Ogden, Kansas, which is right on the gate of Fort Riley. We are literally the last business on the main street before you get to the Fort Riley gate. That's also near Manhattan, Kansas. So depending on how familiar you are with Kansas, those are our landmarks. But we're just, Ogden is a teeny tiny little town. So most people don't know where it is. And it sounds like you do a lot of your business online. So that works out well. Doesn't really matter where you are. Yeah. So how did you get into this? How did you get started with a secondhand, mostly secondhand fabric store? Well, I've always sort of been a saver of things. It's still good. Let's give it a new life. I, How many jars do you have in your cabinet? Oh, man. I am a mason jar. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. Love yeah. me some jars. It stresses my husband out. <laughs> <laughs> Any container. <laughs> I think that's probably a common thing in this, yeah. this list. Baskets and jars. I can't just leave them. <laughs> So let's see, I had started an online quilt, well, yeah, an online quilt shop. It grew out of my house and I was started on Etsy and then I moved over to Shopify. Like it was just kind of a gradually growing thing. It was a stay at home mom kind of hustle. As my kids were getting bigger, I moved it out of the house and had a brick and mortar quilt shop. I had too much stuff in my stash. So I just put out a little table in the quilt shop of secondhand things that was sort of like a pop-up garage sale sort of thing. And people did shop that, but more people said, oh, do you take donations? And so I was like, well, yeah. And then we had people asking just because we were a fabric store, they were like, look, we're cleaning out my mom's sewing room. We've got like a whole truckload of patterns. We're going to the dump if you don't want them. And I'm like, oh no, you're not. It kind of just grew off of that table and started taking up more and more of the quilt shop. So finally decided, okay, this needs to be its own thing. So then I was running two businesses with quilt shops. There's just, there's a lot of competition, especially online, but it's a pretty saturated market. It's kind of hard to get people to notice you on the internet. The thrifty notion side, the secondhand side, there's not very many people doing that or there weren't in 2018 when we started. We were actually growing pretty quickly there. And I was like, okay, this thing wants to be like this wants to exist. So we started focusing more on that and eventually got to a point where we were outgrowing our building and I couldn't keep up with two things. And it was like this fight to keep the quilt shop going and working. And the secondhand one was easy, not actually easy, but like it really wanted to happen. I made the decision last January to just go ahead and shut down the quilt shop and just focus on Thrifty Notion. So since then, we've been growing steadily just the whole time, but it's been really nice to be able to just focus on one. And this is actually more aligned with my values anyway. I was trying to focus on organic and sustainably sourced cotton, which is kind of not even a thing. I mean, organic cotton is better, but it's still not great. So I had always just struggled with trying to sell people big pieces of fabric to cut down into little pieces, to sew into big pieces again, where, you know, the whole art of quilting was started as something to use up scraps and use up things that weren't useful. So it just felt more genuine and more true to me to do the secondhand side of things anyway. That kind of helped with my internal struggle of like, I'm really bad at this whole capitalism thing. (laughs) Encouraging consumption is not a thing that feels particularly good to me. So yeah, that's kind of where we've landed now. It's just, let's just do this one thing and do our best. That's so cool. I have a question. Why do you think secondhand sort of reached its time? What do you think was leading people to that? Because I mean, I could be wrong, but I would think like 10 or 
20 years ago, that would not have been such an appealing idea. It wasn't necessarily in the right circles. It was eBay exists because of that. It was there, but it was only a certain sort of person that was looking for it. It's definitely become more mainstream. I think just the growing awareness of this newer, younger, I mean, it's not even younger generation. I mean, this has been talked about for a long time. It's just that not everyone has been paying attention or wanted to accept it. I think it just feels like such a big problem. I think we're reaching a point where we're just all being confronted with the amount of stuff we have. And people don't necessarily want to waste it when they're purging and sorting and cleaning things out. And I think there's just the financial aspect where things are just harder for a lot of people now and secondhand is cheaper. It's really just a faster way to get higher quality products at a lower price. So I don't know, I think it's sort of a perfect storm of like awareness, but also just necessity. Yeah, I am interested in that really quickly. The businesses of, I mean, without getting too like in the nitty gritty details, do you still operate from a donation standpoint? Like you just take people's fabric and in a way that's a service, right? Offloading and then you resell it. So that's what makes it do. Because there's a ton of extra work behind the scenes of making it all happen. So I think sometimes actually in the really messed up way that our economy is right now, it can feel cheaper to buy new cheap things than, you know what I mean? So I'm just interested in how that actually plays out for you. I mean, that's definitely like in our town, the Goodwill is right next to the Old Navy. And sometimes it is more expensive to buy something at the Goodwill than the Old Navy. Right. Yeah. I mean, everybody's complaining about the, the Goodwill raising their prices, but I'm like, that's actually what a shirt is worth. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, people like you have to pay people to be there to go through your junk and put it on a hanger. Like, it's just like, hello. Exactly. So we operate now on, it's, it's sort of an everything model. We take donations. Some people don't care. They're just like, I just want this out of my house and I'm happy to give it to someone that's not going to throw it away. Other people, we do almost like, I know there are consignment shops or, or clothing shops that you just, like Plato's Closet, you know, where you just walk in and they'll give you a price and it's kind of a take it or leave it situation. We do that as well. We just had a quilt shop in our region closed down. She was just ready to be done and she just needed to liquidate her leftover stuff. So we'll go in and we'll pay for that. And that's just kind of negotiated individually. It's a case by case kind of thing. People with really big estates or like we've had small fashion designing brands that'll be just done or they'll be done with the season and they've got big bolts of stuff left over. That kind of thing we'll pay for, but it's never going to be as much as they would get if they just sold it themselves. That's really the big thing, which is any second hand. That is our major cost is just labor. Like when you get something new from a manufacturer, they're like, this is 10 yards. Here are some stock photos. You can just list it and it's ready to go. When we take something in, we have to unroll the whole thing, measure it out, <laughs> roll it back up, take pictures, figure out what it is. Like fiber identification is a thing we're all, it's like a secret superpower we all have here. We do all of the burn testing and picking up clues of like, it does this have plastic in it. Like we all get pretty good at that. So there are a lot of things behind the scenes that take up a lot of time. And then there's just the storage as well. Like it's going to take a really long time to move 300 yards of bright yellow bridal satin. There are only so many people that need a bright yellow formal. So yeah, who knows? Maybe next <laughs> right. season. I mean, it makes a very good <laughs> costume if you're trying to be, you know, Beauty and the Beast or something. But <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm really interested in the fabric identification 
you were just talking about, because, you know, those of us that do like to go into these places and shop secondhand want to know what we're buying. I always try to buy things without plastic in them, but sometimes you can't tell. And do you have any hints on that? Oh, well, if you, unless you take a lighter to the thrift store, (laughs) which I have been known to do. Just because sometimes there is fabric at thrift stores and I want to know, but it's a lot of practice. So I'm a homestead kid. I was raised on a homestead and my mom is a hand spinner. So I like to say that we are like a couple generations deep now of fiber snobs. My kids, I didn't do it necessarily on purpose or intentionally, I guess, but my kids are now fiber snobs as well. Like we will walk through a store and they will feel things and they'll be like, oh, this is really cute. And then they'll look at the tag and they'll go like, polyester. (laughs) And then they don't buy it. Yay. So my mom and I will sometimes, it's a game, like we'll go in a store and we will like both guess what we think the fiber content is and then check the tag and see who was closest. A lot of it is feel like acrylic is particularly sneaky. It is hard. Yeah. I've done that. I'm like, it's wool. And then you look and you're like, yeah, they've got some really good fake acrylic stuff. So Outside of actually burning it and seeing if it melts and like bubbles, there's not like a really set way to be able to tell. A lot of it is drape and hand and just your touch, really. So practice. If you do have an opportunity to light it on fire, do the burn test. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Describe that to us. Safety precautions assumed, people. (laughs) Okay. So the safest way is to snip a little piece off and hold it with tweezers. We do not do that because we're too in a hurry, but the safest way, snip a piece off, hold it with tweezers and light it on fire. If it bubbles and melts, blow it out. (laughs) If you can see a melted edge and kind of feel a melted plastic on the edge where you burned it, then then it has plastic in it. It's just a matter of like, is it nylon, polyester, whatever. And some of those you can figure out by smell. Then for natural fibers, if it smells like burning hair, then it came from an animal. It's either silk from silkworms or it's some kind of fiber animal. And then from there, you can tell by touch, like, is it silk? Is it wool? Those kinds of things. Then let's see, for the plant fibers, it will burn and it won't have any kind of melted edge to it. It'll just be ashy powder when you kind of touch it. It'll just flake away and be dust. So then you know it's a plant fiber. It might be rayon, which comes from plants. Rayon is a manufactured, like a man-made product, but it comes from cellulose. So it's still biodegradable and made of plants, essentially. If it melts, it's plastic. If it doesn't melt, then it's either animal or plant. And if it smells like burning hair, then it's animal. So those are the general categories. When I did ballet, we used to burn the ends of the ribbons on our point shoes so that they wouldn't unravel. It would create a nice little, it's very satisfying. It is. Actually. (laughs) nice little plastic edge. So I think that's just really useful for people to know that because there's the thing that there are all these synthetic fabrics that are already out there. Secondhand stores are just chock full of them. You know, they have to go somewhere. They're already made. You know, maybe someone, you know, that doesn't bother them. Personally, for me, I try to go for just all all natural fibers. There's a lot of reasons for that. I'd like to be able to, you know, literally compost things when I'm done with them. And you're not going to do that with synthetics at all. And maybe you can talk about this. There's reasons not to wear plastic. 
Do you have anything to say about that? Basically, it's just a little bacteria farm. It just holds all of that against your body and the air can't circulate. I don't really wear plastic either, just for comfort. Like I get sweaty. I can just feel that my skin is not breathing. It doesn't smell great. Like there is a noticeable difference in how smelly you are when you wear polyester versus when you're wearing cotton. Obviously, there are certain situations, there are certain athletic wear, that kind of thing where spandex really does help you out. But I'm the same. I I really want things that I could potentially just compost and know that it's just going to get recycled back into the earth. (laughs) So there's that, there's just the permanence of it. Like this whole industry, the secondhand retail, the things we buy have two costs. Like there's the cost you pay when you buy it, but there's the cost you're paying that most of us never see. That poly cotton shirt, if you put it in the ground, part of it will disappear, but part of it's just going to stay there for a really, really long time. And most of us don't have to confront that. So you don't want to make people feel guilty about everything, but it's so like, think about it, especially when you're buying new. Secondhand, I think it matters a whole lot less. Like it's like you said, it already exists. It's already in the world. You might as well use it as much as possible before it's done. But really, when you're buying new, you really do need to think about that second cost that we essentially in, in the West, we out we outsource our cost. We just dump it on other countries. And so you see those pictures of other countries where you're just like, oh, it's so sad. They don't pick up their trash. And it's like, no, they don't pick up our cash. <laughs> they have nowhere else to put it. <laughs> That's why. I'm not sure I have an answer to this, but there's no answer to the fact that the planet is covered with synthetic textiles already. So what can we do that with them other than just use them till they're done and then they have to go in the landfill? I guess that's just a sad, sad reality. I don't know. The optimist in me thinks that there's some kind of invention coming down the line of something that can, I don't know whether it's a bacteria or some kind of thing that can digest it and, I don't know, turn it into something else, break it down somehow. We can hope. The whole synthetic eating bacteria discussion sort of freaks me out because, you know, it sounds like a good idea at first. And then the next thing you know, it's eating New York, that kind of thing. But, you know, the, the classic solution out of control thing. <laughs> yes. I don't know. You know, uh, humans are ingenious and there's always hope. But the current time, and I've heard this, I don't really have data on it, so I can't say that this is absolute truth, but you know, there's enough clothing and textiles already existing on the planet right now so that if the production somehow miraculously stopped, we'd all have plenty of clothing and textiles for a good while to come. Of course. How long that good while would be. Because what is, pl- what is enough clothing and textiles? Just a generation or two ago, people had like six things that they wore their whole life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And So much of this is just cultural and so much of our dissatisfaction and disease and general unwellness. (laughs) We're not healthy as a culture just because we're on this treadmill of work more to buy more, work more to buy more. And, you know, we have all these labor saving devices, but all they did was free us up to do more labor to buy more stuff (laughs) with clothing. I'm a quilter mostly, like that's mostly what I do as far as my sewing. I have recently started making clothing mostly because I'm like, I should understand this at a deeper level if this is my, you know, selling fabric is what I do. So I recently made a pair of overalls because that's what I wear. (laughs) And it took me 
I think three weeks of in my spare time to make one item of clothing. And I'm like, if we all had to just make our own clothes, that would significantly slow down our consumption. But then even then, I only need so many pairs of overalls and I'm good. So we just almost need an entire culture shift. And I don't know how to do that (laughs) other than talking about it more. I do think a lot of it is, I mean, it is an American and Western mindset. This It's not necessarily like this in all cultures, but there is definitely this idea that more is better and working more is always better. And I just, I'm like, if we just stop buying so much stuff we don't need, we wouldn't have to work so hard. (laughs) We'd have a whole lot more time to just, you know, be healthy and stuff. I think what you described is a little bit of a of an aha moment with the overalls. I was also wondering, and obviously you're immersed in this, but I was wondering if you, and you've mentioned your background and growing up, your mom knew a lot about this and you feel very kind of native to this space of textiles and making your own things. Did you have any big aha moments in your time coming up about this shift towards more... I mean, anything outside of the kind of collective awareness that we're all going through, like were you maybe in your early young adulthood or even as a kid where something seemed a little bit dissonant from what you valued or something like that? I would say it's maybe a little bit more gradual out of necessity. So just a general background, I grew up on a homestead. It wasn't necessarily that they were just homesteading mindset. It was more of a that was where their their house, they moved a house from another location. So the land was just prairie when they put the house on it. And so it was very much a out of necessity, both financial and just like reality. We had to build everything from the ground up. And there are five kids. I'm the oldest of five. And so it was not like super affluent situation. So reusing, being very frugal, being very waste minded, like paying attention and not wasting stuff was just part of the family ethos, I guess. So I went to school to be a teacher. So my first chapter, I was an elementary and middle school teacher. And I had growing up always just been really interested in what my mom was doing with the textiles. We raised fiber animals. And so we had Angora rabbits and she had Angora goats. We had a llama for a little while, like just things floating through. And I really did understand the whole process of from the animal to the finished product, like spinning, weaving, knitting, crochet, dye, all of those things. So I knew how much work it took. So that's just like in the background of my consciousness. I know that there's way more work involved in this. So anytime I saw anything in a regular retail store that was $5 or less, I'm just like, that is impossible. There is no way that that is fair. There is no way that that is an okay item. So I quit teaching to be mom and sort of just had this mom side hustle thing going on with Etsy and selling fabric and all of that. When I started in the secondhand thing where people were asking me to come, they're like, well, I have a lot. I don't know if I can bring it to you. Oftentimes they're older and it's just a a mobility issue. And I'm like, oh, well, I can just come pick it up. And so I would go into their homes and I would see how much stuff they had to downsize and realize like an entire family could have everything they need for decades, just by taking this person's stuff and moving it to their house. (laughs) I think there's plenty of stuff. We don't need more stuff. And we don't need more plastic stuff that just breaks and then it's garbage. And I don't know, it was just like, I didn't really have an aha moment. It was just more of a growing awareness of 
oh my gosh, there's already way too much stuff. We already have way too much stuff. Where are we going to put it all? Where does it all go? And I still am not exactly like, where does it all go? <laughs> we don't have to look at it. I think, yeah, just, and even anytime I just walk into a regular thrift store, I just, you just look out over the sea of racks of things and you're just like, we're never going to use this up. There really is way more than we would use. We would need decades to use up all the textiles and, and clothing that already exist, even if we just stopped today. So I'm just trying to be a very tiny solution in a very big you problem. You don't? You don't know? <laughs> Anybody that's ever, you know, downsized themselves or like myself, I've in recent years, I've downsized my parents' house twice. They moved from their home that they've been in decades to a smaller place and then they've, they've moved again. And so I've had to go back through like my own history because, of course, it's stored in my parents' house for over three decades, four decades was, you know, things that I grew up with and around and all these things that had stories to them. And, you know, part of our family story, our history and all that. But a lot of it, I have just tried to absorb into my own household. That's not working either. So each subsequent generation is dealing with their lifetime of stuff, their parents and everything. And I think it's just, people are really starting to get it. They're really starting to get it. Like, like we're saying here, not sure what's to be done about it, but it's more and more apparent that, you know, we're all just inundated with stuff. I think one solution to that is, and it's what we do, it's marketing, marketing secondhand the same way you would market new stuff because it is just as good fabric that has sat on a shelf if it's not gotten sun damaged or faded or anything if it's been sitting on a shelf it's just as good as when you bought it from the store nothing has happened to it it's just been sitting there waiting for a project so it's still just as good as the new stuff so we take a pretty picture we write a nice description and it's it's sort of trying to remind people that there's nothing different about this there's nothing wrong with this and trying to give people ideas. So that's really just the trick in what we're doing as opposed to having lots of people who do what I do on eBay, on Etsy, lots of people selling secondhand, vintage, all of that. Really, the only thing I've done differently is try to build a standalone website. And then we just, we do the marketing. And so much of it is the pretty pictures and the little descriptions and trying to get people excited about it. And then, I mean, the other layer of that is that we do have the feel good. We do have the, you are doing something better for the planet by using this that was sitting in Nancy's sewing room for 30 years. She never got to it. Let's get it out into the world so it can fulfill its purpose. This poor piece of fabric has been sitting on this shelf just wanting to be a pair of pants. <laughs> Somebody just turned it into a pair of pants. So telling a story, all of that, I just think that in America... In our culture, marketing might be our solution, or at least part of it. However, there are many great forces at work that don't want everyone to go secondhand. You know, what happens to, say, Joanne's Fabrics if everybody woke up one morning and said, we already have enough textiles, I'm going to buy just secondhand. There's always the system out there. That, you know, our economy is based on people, you know, keeping buying, buying, buying. So there's always that. So do you think there's any, could the big guys like get on board with second hand and make it a, a real thing, like a capitalistic thing? 
I think a lot of them are. I know Levi's has a whole section of their website that is jeans that people have sent back to them and they charge more sometimes for like the shredded vintage <laughs> jeans. Toad & Co. is another one. They're a little more eco-friendly to begin with, but like Patagonia, a lot of those brands have on their website a secondhand section where people send stuff back to them and they check it out. They mend it or whatever. And they're like, okay, it's Patagonia certified or whatever. And then they send it back out into the world. So I think they are getting in on that. I don't know if the big fabric companies will necessarily do that or the hobby hobby stores. Maybe. Um, I am finding that people are frustrated with the quality of a lot of the things. It's hit and miss like anywhere. It's hit and miss as far as what quality of stuff they're carrying. But pressure is to go faster and be cheaper. So you sacrifice quality in that a lot of times. So we do find that the vintage stuff is often much better quality than what you find in the stores now. How are you with quality control? I mean, I imagine you probably hope to sell everything, but do you, is that reflected in the price or if, do you ever, do you have fabrics that are like, this is really just crappy yep. and <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so we do. One example is wool. It is really rare to get old wool fabric that has not been visited by moths. We are always shocked if it doesn't have moth holes. So we will bundle those up and just make a box of wool that has holes and we'll sell it as a rug makers bundle. And it's way cheaper than buying new fabric. So we really do try to reach out to those folks that are doing the upcycling kind of crafts anyway. We'll generally, if we catch it, we really try to catch all the flaws, but we will mark it as is and drop the price. We also do bundles, basically like just a stack of coordinating fabrics that are all kind of in the same vibe. And then it's like, you can just buy this whole stack of fabric for cheap. They all go together. Just they might have flaws. Pay attention when you're cutting out your fabric is just because there's one little stain on it. If you're cutting out a pattern, you can probably avoid it. So it's still fine, but it's not new. We really try to be as clear and transparent as possible about these are the issues we found. Or if a fabric is truly just like, this is a really terrible polyester. No one should wear this. This is great for like a costume or like a tote bag. We really try to just tell people like, this is what you're getting. You might be disappointed. This is just bad. <laughs> I, my very favorite kind of project is the upcycling, like quilting speaks to me because it's like, I like a big basket full of just scraps. What can we make out of this that'll actually be beautiful? I also make a lot of rugs, which is basically the the bottom of the food chain as far as scraps and the world only needs so many rugs. <laughs> so that's a little bit tricky, but those kinds of things, those kinds of uses are good for those fabrics that are just like, this is not great. I don't know why they made this to begin with. There's, we get a lot of those where we're like, why would anyone bring this into existence in the first place? This is terrible. <laughs> Do you sell any of your upcycled projects, like your finished stuff that you've made? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, we have a little section on our website. It's our zero waste studio. I don't have a ton on there right now, mostly because I just don't have that much time to work on that sort of thing. But we have some woven rugs. There's this great upcycling artist named Crispina French, and she makes these potholder rugs. So it's just like a giant loom, like you would make pot holders on, but you use, you cut t-shirts into loops and you make woven rugs out of t-shirts. You can make them as big as you want. You just need a big, big loom. So we're making some of those. My goal, I keep saying I'm going to do it, but I don't. I really want to make like an eight by 10 pot holder rug, which they're very thick because they're made of 
t-shirt loops. So they're very squishy and they feel really nice on your feet. But yeah, actually rugs eat up a lot of trash fabric. I also crochet, just like take strips of trash fabric and crochet them into like crocheted rag rugs, just the very old school. Back in the day, they really had the upcycling thing down pat. They didn't waste much. So if you just go back to those old crafts, that's kind of where a lot of the answers lie. It's just a matter of getting people on board and being like, this kind of rug is super aesthetic. You should totally have one. (laughs) Yeah. Something we did in the last year that was very satisfying was my husband cleaned out his t-shirts and there were, oh, I forget how many, a lot, a lot. He sent them off somewhere. I should find out where, because they did a great job and they made a, a, a nice big old quilt out of it. And it's so much fun. And just, it's really turned into like a meaningful item in our home rather than just a bunch of things oozing out of drawers that he couldn't get rid of because they were sentimental. That was a good move. And it was pretty pricey, but I I consider it completely worth it. Those things weren't thrown away. They're not in a landfill. They were beyond wearing. And now we use it for something else. So if you've gotten into the the t-shirt quilt thing at all? We have people ask all the time if we do that. Uh, No. (laughs) It's a very specific other type of business. It is. Right. It is a lot of, well, anytime you're using a secondhand material, it just takes more time because you have to do more problem solving to make things work together rather than just taking something new. Especially the t-shirts because you're not just, you can't just cut willy nilly. You're working around the designs and stuff. and And some of those fabrics, they stretch or, you know, you cut them and they shrivel up or, or whatever. I know it's, it's, there's certainly an art to it. And it's so, so that's kind of like, if that's a person's thing, that's their thing. You know, people will come in and ask for a t-shirt quilt or can you make me a rug or whatever? And I want to say yes, but I'm like, realistically, uh, that's not going to get done. (laughs) I won't. I want it done. It's really interesting to hear you talk through your process of the original quilt shop too. And even just letting that go and how, gosh, it really is just helpful to remember that we can only do so much and we're good at what we're good at. And that's the whole reason to be in community and communicate with one another. And we're all good at different things. And the more that we can share skills and spread that around, then expect it all to come from one place or one website or one easy click or one subscription or something. That brings another question to mind. How much do you think your store there and what you do has to do with education. Do you have a chance to talk people through these things or does your clientele already know anyway? Do they come with this sort of knowledge of why someone would be doing this and what things they're looking for to reflect their personal values in terms of the environment or their personal health or how much education is mixed in with a thrifty notion? A lot. I am a teacher by training. So that, that just, I'm kind of a smarty pants, so I like to share what I know. But yes, (laughs) education is just a major part of what we do. And and I think it's for any kind of craft industry related thing, the more you can teach people about the craft, the more, I mean, the better it is for you as someone who's selling the supplies. But it also, we have this weird message where we're sort of like, buy from us, but don't buy from us. Check your stash first, ask your friends second, look in your community third, And then come buy from us if you can't find it somewhere else. So we have this very strange marketing situation, but 
education is a major. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can relate. It's, it's like we don't want to add to the consumption, but we're also like all of this stuff is here. So it's more of a when you need this, please think of us first. Don't go to those other places. We have zippers. Oh my word! Everybody saves all their zippers, <laughs> or they buy too many zippers. We have so many zippers. Don't go buy them. We have them sorted by color and size and all of that. Like trying to make it as easy as possible for people to find what they're looking for. I think that's the other thing we bring to it is get on our website. You can probably find what you're looking for. But yes, we're constantly doing education and just inspiration, trying to just pull, not even us necessarily being the ones creating the content, but just sharing like, whoa, look what this person made with these materials. We would have never thought to do that. That's very cool. Go do that. (laughs) Just all the ways we can think of to like, do all of those are things, reduce it, recycle, reuse, just use what you have, that kind of stuff. It is a conundrum. You're educating people about sustainability and you're also trying to support a business and it gets really tricky. I don't know. Do you have anything to say about that? Like making your business work, like keeping your doors open, even at the same time telling people, don't go buy stuff, (laughs) go home, go home first. We try to do a, we are here. If you're looking for this, we are here. But it's a fine line to walk between we are here and, oh my goodness, we just got all of this quilting cotton in. Buy some quilting cotton. Any maker, any creative person needs a little bit of a stash. Like that's just part of the creative process, having materials right there on hand so that you can just spontaneously go when inspiration strikes. But there is a balance in that as well of, you know, looking around and being like, could I ever possibly make enough quilts to use up all of this fabric in the years I have left in my life, potentially? There are people where there is no way ever they will ever, ever, ever use all the fabric they have in their stash. We are trying to educate people about that as well. And that's the other side of our business as well is the the marketing to two different groups of people. We are trying to reach the people getting rid of stuff before they throw it away or their family throws it away. And then we're trying to reach the people who are looking for stuff. It's just one of those things that you almost go by your gut. Does this feel right? Does this feel okay? The marketing side is just a constant discussion. In the shop, we talk about this stuff all the time. Just like, hey, I had a great idea. We should do this. And then someone will be like, I don't know, this part of it seems a little weird. And so we'll try and figure out, all right, how do we fix that? How do we, how do, we do this so that we're not encouraging people to buy things they really don't need while still getting stuff out the door? when people do need it. Well, and then there there are the people like many of our listeners, I assume that that would come to you because of your ethos, because this is what you're trying to do. And so there's that aspect of it. Well, you know, we like where you're coming from. So we're going to put our money with you. So there might be that too. As this awareness grows and as more and more people become aware of the issues and so maybe seeking out more people like, like you guys. I love what you were saying about being a textile snob. That's just awesome. (laughs) I am too. You threw something out a little earlier about cotton and organic cotton and the problems with cotton in general. I wonder, I would love to hear you talk about that a little bit. This is again, one of those things where I'm not sure where all of my information has come from over the years. This is just general stuff in my head. So I cannot cite sources, but generally speaking, Cotton is a very resource heavy crop and it doesn't have a lot of natural defenses to pests and things like that. So 
regular cotton uses a lot of water. It uses a lot of chemicals to just be grown. And it uses a lot of land for the amount of fiber you get. If you're putting it up against any of the natural fibers, it's probably the last of your choices as far as what's best for the environment. Organic cotton is just a step above. It still uses a lot of land. It still uses a lot of water. And it still needs a lot of pesticides. They're just a different type that are organic, you know, okay for the organic certification. So above that, you have linen and hemp, which when you actually use those fibers, they're extremely similar. Hemp and linen are almost, you almost can't tell the difference when you're just feeling them and working with them. Unless someone tells you that's hemp, you're going to think it's linen. Both of those have more of a resistance to pests. You can get much more fiber per acre from the plant. It uses more of the plant, so it's the stem of the plant instead of just the little puff on the flower. So Linen is maybe next in line as far as sustainability and then hemp above that. Just hemp is kind of, it's, it's got a, a lot of its own natural defenses and it doesn't need a ton of water to be healthy. So, and even just conventionally grown is going to be better than organic cotton. So it's kind of the hierarchy of the natural fibers. So the problem we have in the States is hemp is more, way more expensive than anything else, partially because of the laws that people can't grow it. It's starting to change. You can you can start growing. There, there are ways you can grow hemp in the United States now. I'm always excited when I find it. And I think the more demand there is for it, the more that price is going to come down. Same with linen. We don't really grow linen in the States. There are some projects starting. The only one I'm for sure know about is in Chico, California. Chico Flax, they're trying to bring linen production to the United States. So we interviewed them. Yeah, there's an episode with them. Nice. I want to, I want to go visit them. So there are projects coming along, but as far as like making decisions about textiles, you know, for me personally, anything with plastic is at the bottom of the barrel. I'm only going to buy secondhand because it's already existing. If I'm buying new, I'm going to probably start on the hemp end and, and make my way down in the choices based on, you know, can I even find what the product that I'm looking for? So that's what I know um, intuitively from years of doing this stuff. That's, that's kind of my knowledge base on those natural fibers. I really, really like that little summary there and sort of puts it in a nutshell for people. And I will add to that, there, there are growing flax projects, including one very near us, the Pennsylvania Flax Project. And we have an episode on that one as well. And they're trying to upscale the production of ones was a, a very common and industry in Pennsylvania. And we're in Maryland, which is very close to Pennsylvania. And we've got our own little project going through our fiber shed, our Chesapeake fiber shed. Are you familiar with the fiber sheds? I know, I, I know vaguely. Um, I've heard of them. I mean, it's similar to a watershed, like your local fiber economy, basically. Exactly. We have an episode on that as well. So, <laughs> so we have our own fiber shed here, local Chesapeake fiber shed, and we have our own little flax project going. And so I have grown some flax this year myself in my own garden. It's just a little bit. The whole idea is just people that have joined. We have a 40 something people that are in, in our very local project, just trying it out, just growing it. How does it grow? When do you plant it? How does it behave? Uh, when do you harvest? And then, you know, there's the whole retting thing. So, and we have a little online community so people can post their pictures and say what's happened and so forth. And next month, we're going to have a processing workshop where we get together and learn the steps in hand processing. And then 
I don't know what the future of it is. We might get to the point where we say, okay, we hope we can scale this up in some way and bring it back. You know, at one time, flax production or linen production was more of a thing in the United States. So anyway, there are a lot of flax efforts going on across the country, I think, more and more. And to your point, it's much more accessible at this point than all the hemp stuff, because that is so laden with permitting and processes and all this kind of stuff that really encumbers that industry, unfortunately. But it'll change. It'll change over time. I mean, like when Emma and I first started Lady Farmer, growing hemp was illegal. You couldn't do it. And now it's legal. You just have to have a bunch of permits. It's really prohibitive. Yeah. Well, it's kind of weird through history how like linen was the fiber, at least for European cultures. Linen was it. It was the cheap stuff. And we've so shifted enough, quote, labor saving devices have come along for the cotton production that it just took over and it's cheaper. But sustainability wise, it's not cheaper. It's really got a high cost. So we can shift that dynamic back to the more sustainable fibers being the cheap ones. That would really help. <laughs> we just have to get there. And again, you know, we have to be cognizant of the marketing going out there. I mean, cotton is the fabric of our lives, right? So that's what you reach for. Cotton, all natural, breathable, all, all these things we've all been, I mean, we've grown up with this. And whereas our grandparents and great-grandparents, they had flax growing in their backyard, Everybody had their little flax patch. I can't say everybody, but if you were homesteading a hundred years ago, you would have had a, a flax patch and you would have made some things out of it. Even hemp at one point was very common, was like one of the most common because we used it for making ship sails and things and that just totally disappeared. The history is really interesting there. So Liv, I love your website is so great, by the way. Good job. And you've got so many great blogs on there, all about all these things that we've been talking about, all about all the different fibers and things like that, and lots of great inspiration. And I wanted to, and some writing about slow living. And so I wanted to ask you just to talk a little bit about what slow living means to you. You said something earlier in the conversation, oh, about making the overalls and how that was slow and how if everybody made their own clothes, we might be less inclined to buy things. And I think that's just one example of why the slow living is so integral to the sustainable conversation, slow living sustainability. But I'm interested if you could say a bit more about that and personally your own journeys with slow living. And I think, I mean, mostly it's a deconditioning. Anybody born after, I don't even know, but 1930, 1940, we've been, as soon as that marketing, those madmen started with the marketing campaigns and telling us all we needed more and more, we're born into a culture where it just seems normal to be incredibly inefficient and incredibly wasteful. And we don't even notice because that's just how our lives have always been. So realizing that more stuff does nothing for my happiness. Once you reach a level of my need, my basic needs are met, more is not better. <laughs> In fact, it, it starts to make you worse. It makes you unhealthy. It makes you more stressed out. It's just too much. So I, it's this gradual deconditioning of what the culture has told me is normal and realizing that when I make my own food from whole ingredients, I 
feel better. It tastes so much better. I used to really think that like Chili's was so good. (laughs) I loved that restaurant. And I go back now and I'm no, I'm not trying to pick on them, but <laughs> I also wonder, cause I agree with you. And I wonder if actually the quality also went down and we're not like crazy. I feel you. Like I used to love like Fazoli's and maybe I was just a kid, but I thought that was like the best Italian food you could yeah. eat. Uh, that's the thing I've wondered too. Like, has this restaurant gotten worse in quality or do I just know what's good now? <laughs> Yeah, um, but it it goes to, for food, but it also goes for all of the things, all of all of the things in life. I need a rug. I don't need one, but I would like to have a rug at my cutting table in my sewing area. And it it's a very specific size of space and I want a certain thing. So I'm making the rug. I measured it. I figured it out. I know what I'm doing and I'm in the middle of making the rug. I could go buy one and I could buy a secondhand one but it just takes longer. And that, that's where the slow living comes in. If it's not an immediate need, just wait. Like, just wait and see if it comes along. I'd, I'd like to have different nightstands. Rather than going to the nearest furniture warehouse and purchasing that, I'm just gonna wait and see what pops up at estate sales. And eventually the right thing's gonna come my way. It's just a, it's a whole shift in mindset of if it's not an immediate, actual physical need, then let's just put it on the wish list and wait and see what the the universe, whatever, whatever will show up, whatever will cross our path. And I've gotten this, I don't know if y'all are familiar with Mr. Money Mustache. He's like a financial blogger, but he's really a lifestyle. Like he's a, he's a practicality. I need to subscribe to Mr. Uh, Money it's Mustache. A, it's, like, a blog. Blog. <laughs> it's a blog about early retirement and financial freedom, basically. But it's really about lifestyle. And he talks about this. Once your basic needs are met, the rest is just consumption for consumption's sake. And it doesn't actually make you any happier. So realizing that the process, and it's this cliche of like, it's not the destination, it's the journey. But that is truly, the meal only takes five to 10 minutes to actually eat, but it took an hour or more to make. And I actually enjoy the making. I actually enjoy the making of the clothing, the making of the rug. It feels useful. It feels productive in a way that just going out and buying stuff doesn't. And then you value the thing. I am way less likely to throw away a rug that I made myself because I know exactly how long it took me to make that thing. And I'm going to try and find someone to give it to or to to another way to use it where I know it's going to be used or appreciated. So I think it's just been this gradual realization of like what actually makes me fulfilled, what actually makes me happy. And it's really not all the stuff. I love the mantra, just wait. How many things that can be applied to in so many ways. And the impulse, the modern impulse to feel like you have a need, hop in the car or hop on Amazon or or whatever so you can have it right away. It's true, we can that is available at our fingertips, the magic and the kind of alchemy of when you add waiting in there just adds a whole nother dimension to the thing and your experience of the thing. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. So here's something we ask all of our guests. What does the good dirt mean to you? I've been pondering this. I was doing my homework. So I think for me, the good dirt, any good thing has a little bit of ew. A little bit of yuck. So when I first started gardening, 
I had my little my little raised bed with my tomatoes and it started to get crabgrass and we were getting into the heat of like late July and August. And my garden didn't look like the pictures. It didn't look like what I was seeing in gardening magazines. And so I ripped out that crabgrass because I wanted that nice, pretty, dark dirt. And all that did was cause the soil to bake and get super hot because it didn't have the shade of that plant. It wasn't, it wasn't holding the moisture. And I just, I had to water more and it was cooking the tomato plant. <laughs> so I realized that there's a little bit of yuck. And good, healthy soil has slimy guys in it. It has little creepy crawlies. There's all those little guys that we go, ooh, they're helping you, most of them. Most of them are doing a good thing there and there, there should be a lot of them. There should actually be quite a lot of slimy ick in the good dirt, which can apply metaphorically to life as well. I mean, anytime there is life being created, there's some goo, <laughs> there's some yuck. It's messy. So I think the biggest periods of growth in our lives and growth in our ideas come from something uncomfortable and something kind of icky and not not the most pleasant, but it causes us to grow. Oh, that's wonderful. And it doesn't look like the pictures and it doesn't always look like Instagram. And yes, <laughs> much appreciated. Thank you so much. I love that. Well, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the audience or what would you most like people to understand or take away from this conversation? I think the main thing is just like, remember that everything you buy has two costs. What you're paying right now, it might be really cheap, but you need to think about what's going to happen when you're done with it because there's a cost to be paid there too. I think if we all had to put our own garbage in our own backyard, that would make a huge difference. There is that. And and the cost, when you give your stuff to a thrift store, when you pass your stuff along to someone like us, there's a lot of work involved in dealing with your stuff. It's off of your plate, but now it's on mine. And I'm happy to do that because I actually enjoy it, but it's work. It's work. And that's why it costs what it does. Thank you very much for that. And, and thank you for a really interesting and fun and informative conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. I love just working through all these things. <laughs> Again, <laughs> you know, these are things, yeah, maybe we've touched on these things before, but these, you know, as we were saying earlier, what can we do about these things? The main thing we can do is talk about it and get people knowing what's going on raise people's awareness and people have a choice of whether or not and how to change their behavior, but at least we can talk about it. And thank you for doing what you're doing because while it might seem like there's plenty of places to buy secondhand fabric and that this is already happening everywhere, your website's beautiful and easy to shop. And I don't think it's something that we can have too much of. So. I agree. Great. Yes. <laughs> so all of you listeners out there. Oh yeah, where can people find you? Okay, we are a thrifty notion at a thrifty notion.com. We'll also pop up usually if you search secondhand fabric, fabric thrift store, that kind of thing. But also you will, if you search those things, you will find people maybe closer to you. So we make it easy to shop from your couch, but we also encourage people to go to their local creative reuse centers and thrift stores to find all those secondhand things. We are happy to share. There's plenty of secondhand stuff to go around, so... Awesome. Thank you so much. We can't wait to chat again soon. And I'm going to, I also love quilting. So here's what I'm going to do, Liv. <laughs> I'm going to use up what I have. Yes. 
And then I'm going to ask my friends if they have any fabric. And then I will go to your website and get some fun things. But I am excited to know about your zippers and things because I do have some garment sewing projects. And those things are really annoying they to are. buy. Shrouded yeah, in plastic yeah. yeah. and all that stuff. Too. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Liv. Thank you for tuning in, calling in, and spreading the good dirt. We love hearing from you. You can reach our listener voicemail at 443-459-1950. That's 443-459-1950. You can find this number in our show notes and in our Instagram profile. This show is produced by Lady Farmer, a slow living lifestyle community. And the original music is composed and performed by John Kingsley. For more from Lady Farmer, follow us on Instagram at WeAreLadyFarmer. That's We Are Lady Farmer. Or join us online at www.ladyfarmer.com. We'll see you next time on The Good Dirt. Goodbye.